Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. And Lord, we even have it in a language that we understand. And that is a great honor, a great privilege. Uh, we just, we, we thank you that you are able to speak to us. And Lord, we ask that as you speak to us, that we might hear what you have to say. We might work in our hearts. Lord, I pray for myself as I, as I proclaim your good news, as I, as I share what your word says, I I pray that you would bless me in, in, the, in the speaking of this word, that you would use my tongue to proclaim what you want to say rather than what I want to say. Lord, we pray that you might make us attentive, that you might make us ready to receive. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. What do you reckon makes a good fortress? What do you reckon makes a good castle? What about kids? What do you think makes a good castle? And you're going to have to speak up loud because I'm a long way away. Strong walls, yes. A good, a good fortress needs strong walls. A moat filled with crocodiles. That will be helpful for keeping people out. Yeah. A strong foundation, yes. I reckon that we there's three things that you need for a good fortress. Three things. I think it needs to be protective. It needs to protect those people inside it. I think it needs to be strong to, with, to be able to withstand attack. I reckon it needs to sustain people. You see, a fortress is a defensive structure. It's for protection. Normally, if you want to go and fight a war, you go out onto the plains, out into an area where you can have a good, good hack at each other. But if you want to be defensive, you want to defend yourself, you go and hide in a fortress. It's a help. And I reckon it needs those three key features in order for it to work, to be protective, because it needs to protect those people who are taking refuge inside. And usually that means being on high ground so it's hard to attack or with a moat around it to make it hard to get to. It needs to be strong. It needs to be able to withstand the prolonged attack, shrugging off the enemy's best weapons. And it needs to sustain its people because if you're going to be hiding inside, you need to be able to stay inside long enough for the enemy to give up and go away. So you need a supply of fresh water. You need stores of food. A good fortress sustains its people. In a time of trouble and war and strife, a fortress is a good place to be. And if it has those key features, I reckon it's a good place for survival. Now, the security and safety offered by a fortress in difficult times is very attractive. It's a refuge that you could run to. When you saw the army coming over the hill, you could flee to the fortress. When the waters are rising and the flood was coming, you could climb up the hill to the castle. For the ancient person, even somebody from a couple hundred years ago, a fortress was an emblem of strength and security. You know, it's not such a big deal for us anymore. We've got planes that can drop bombs as they fly over. But put yourself in the mind of somebody before the invention of atom bombs and and aircraft. The fortress was a sign of strength and security. And so it's no wonder then, back in the day, when this psalm was written, somebody thought... I'm going to write about God 
and a right about a fortress. They use the idea of a fortress to paint the picture of God, the Lord God of heaven and earth. And so the, the sons of Korah wrote this worship song that we're looking at today. And it shows how clearly God is that ultimate fortress refuge. He is secure. He provides protection. He sustains his people. And so we're going to see how these ideas play out across that psalm as we work our way through it. And in the theme of the last few weeks of sermons we've been doing, we've been looking at promises that propel, promises that propel. And this psalm is a promise that propels our faith, that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It's something that we're reminded of across the scriptures, but especially here in this psalm, it really focuses in on it. And it's only a short psalm of 11 verses, so I say we just get into it and we just go through it verse by verse. Thankfully, it's kind of divided up into three chunks, so we'll go through each chunk in turn. So the first part, we see in this first chunk that we can be fearless when things are falling apart. Fearless when things are falling apart. So after the author gives some notes on the title, sorry, the author and the tune, the psalm just gets stuck straight into it. No build-up, just bang. Here's the theme. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This sets the scene for the psalm. In some psalms, you don't actually find out what the key point of the psalm is until you get to the middle or, or even to the end. But here, we get it up front. This is the point. It sets the scene. And it's a song for God's people to sing. Those who find their refuge in God. There's no point singing this song unless God is your refuge, unless you belong to him. And how do you know you belong to him? Well, in the Old Testament, we know that those were the people of the tribe of Israel, those people who God chose and those people who God protected and looked after. But when Jesus arrived, that changed everything. We suddenly have this much bigger and grander picture of who God's people are. As Jesus came, the meaning of the people of God became much broader. Anybody who put their faith and trust in Jesus, anybody who, who came to Christ and asked him to be their king, they became the people of God. Anyone who finds their refuge and strength in God, anyone who comes to God in Jesus' name is part of the people of God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So the the song starts out with this wonderful declaration, God is our refuge. But what does that mean for us? How does this, the fact of this declaration impact God's people? Well, we get it in the next verse. It explains it for us. It says, it says, therefore, will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Therefore, we will not fear. God is our refuge. Therefore, we will not fear. These things are linked. Because God is our refuge, we will not fear. One leads into the other. Now, there's something aspirational about it, to be sure. We all know, we have all experienced fears in this life. We know as a people, 
of God that we have experienced fear, that we have been afraid of what the future will hold. We have been anxious. Yet the writer of this song is confident that if we come and we see God for who he is, we don't need to fear. We can be fearless in the face of danger simply because God is our security. The fear can be done away with. And that fearlessness is not limited either. The song has an example of the most cataclysmic event that the psalmist can think of. What is the most earth-shattering thing that could happen? The world is falling apart. Well, it would be if the mountains were crashing into the sea. But he says, even then, we will not fear. Can you, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the high and towering mountains of the world? Those insurmountable, towering geological wonders being buried under the waves? What kind of earth-shattering, cataclysmic event has to happen for the great dividing range to be washed into the sea? This is a picture of something that seems steadfast and immovable being undermined, being uprooted by the chaotic, swirling seas. The most solid thing in the world being undermined by chaos. But even when the seemingly most stable, foundational elements of this life are being undermined, God's people are fearless. So let's connect this to God's people now. This is ancient poetry that, poetry that paints this picture of reality. But what are some rubber-meets-the-road examples of fearlessness when the world is falling apart? Well, we could start close to home with our families, our foundational relationships. Sometimes we see there this place that we think is our security, a, a, a place of rest and, and safety, but it might be falling apart. Our families might get broken up by agents of evil, by selfishness, by pride, by anger, by idols of the heart, by unfaithfulness. But even when our foundational relationships are falling apart, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, because God is our refuge and strength. Maybe we see the moral and ethical foundations of our society falling apart around us, What we once thought was secure and steadfast, we all believe this, that this is wrong, that this is evil, is now all of a sudden being lauded as wrong. Sorry, what was once evil is now being lauded as good and right and virtuous. What was once recognized as evil or unhealthy is now celebrated and promoted, but we will not fear, though the earth gives way, because God is our refuge and strength. Perhaps when the next natural disaster is bearing down on us, bushfires decimating the countryside, or there is a disease that you can't see which is forcing us apart from one another. Even then, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble, at its swelling. There was a man who showed us what it looked like to find his refuge and strength in God. It was Jesus Christ, the God-man. He's this prime example of what it looks like to stand fearlessly against a world that is utterly opposed to you. Satan tried to attack him. 
His own people disowned him. The religious leaders, the ones who were supposed to be his servants, condemned him to death. The people he made tortured him and executed him. If ever there was a sign that the world was crumbling, that that the world was falling apart, it's when the creator is killed by his creation. That's a mountain being attacked by the raging seas. Yet in the midst of it, he went willingly, fearlessly forward with his father as guide and strength. He always sought the God, the Father in prayer. He always found his strength in his father. He had sorrow and agony, and yet he was fearless in the midst of it. He was strengthened Remember in the garden of Gethsemane where he was feeling the sorrow, the weight of what was happening. And in being, sorry, there an angel, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Soon after this, Jesus entered into death. And it looked like chaos had won. The smashing, roaring, surging forces of evil had pushed their way to dominance as Christ sank into the grave. Yet, Christ rose from the dead. He came back from the grave. He won for God's people a victory over death so that you and I have nothing to fear. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? You're disarmed. You're a toothless dog. We've been inoculated against your effects. Sure, we will still die, but this is no permanent thing. It's temporary. There's nothing to fear of this short interlude before glory. If your faith and trust are in Jesus, if you have given your loyalty to him, you have a refuge against the ongoing power of death. You can be fearless when things are falling apart. In this second section, we see that we can be secure in God's city. Secure within God's city. In this second section of the psalm, we notice a bit of a change of tone. We were looking at this idea of the swirling, destructive waters. But in verse 4, there's a change. We're still speaking of water, but no longer the chaotic waters of destruction, but streams of water that bring life. Refreshing streams. In verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Song is now singing of a city, God's city, that is made glad and joyful by a pleasant river. It's a place where God is, where there is life. This river in God's city should make our ears start tingling because the psalm is picking up a theme that is across the scriptures. And it starts in Eden, where there was a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden, where it divided and became four rivers that went out into the world and brought life everywhere. Here was a river that flowed out of the place where God was, where God and humankind dwelt together. 
And then in Ezekiel, there is also a vision of a stream of water that comes from God's temple and gives life to the world. And you may remember in Revelation, the angel showed John the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. There's this theme of this this place where God is, where His city is, where His temple is. It's the source of life-giving streams of water, the source of the river of life. And in our psalm, we're reminded of this river and the way that it brings joy and happiness to the city, unlike the surging waters of chaos which undermine. There is a joy and peace in God's temple city. And while it doesn't say so in so many words here, the theme of the streams of, from God's dwelling place provides inklings, it provides hints of the way that God's Spirit is like a stream of life that comes from God's presence to revive a dying world. And Jesus spoke about that water of life, saying, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This water from God brings life. God sustains those who are secure in his temple city. And the the psalm tells us that the city of God will never be undermined. It will never fall. Why? Verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. God is there. And that's enough to secure it. In ancient times, often battles would start at first light And so the city would be assaulted in the morning. And yet here the psalmist says at first light, when morning dawns, God will help her. That's enough to secure it. God is there. It cannot be overthrown. It cannot be undermined because God is in the midst of her. He only needs to speak. As we showed in the next verse, he only needs to speak to secure it. In verse 6, in verse 6, yes. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. He utters his voice, the earth melts. That's all he needs to do to secure this city. I suppose the next question to ask is where is this city? When the psalmist is writing, he probably has in mind either a a, a beautiful city in his hometown region or an idealized picture of Jerusalem where Old Testament Israel was asked to build the temple of God and where God dwelt with them for a time. But that city fell. It was decimated by invading armies on several occasions. Sometimes God did act to protect them and save them, but not every time. You see, the old Jerusalem was a foreshadow of the heavenly and new Jerusalem, which we are waiting for now. It's not a city that's built with human hands. It's not a city that can be undermined by human hands, and we're waiting for its appearing. But even now, we're starting to see the manifestation of that city in the world as God's church is built. The place where God's Spirit dwells 
He lives in his church by his spirit and he is building us into a beautiful temple by his spirit. As Paul told the Ephesians, in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So the church will never fall. Why? Because God is there. God's spirit is within her. The gates of hell will not prevail it, prevail over it. It, it starts like a mustard seed. Twelve blokes in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows. Sometimes it looked like it might be trimmed back, but it will never die. It starts as a mustard seed and grows as a tree that will tower over everything else. The temple city of God, both the one that we live in now, in the church, and its full and final form to come, will never be destroyed. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And so we as Christians who belong to God can look out calmly at the chaos of the world, knowing that the moment that God opens his mouth, it will all end. He doesn't promise that we will only ever experience good times or that we will never have to suffer, but he does promise that we will win. He does promise that his people will not experience irreversibly defeat and death because he will act to rescue them. We are sustained by him. We are protected by him and his strength will ensure the city never fails. And so we can respond with the refrain in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is a comfort, an encouragement, a reassurance that God is with us. His people. God has been a rescue and a refuge to his people in the past, like he was to Jacob and his offspring. There are countless examples of how God acted to save and protect his people. And there are also examples of how he disciplined them by leading to them to the consequences of their actions. But he will not always chide. He will not be angry forever. I remember how my dad would bring consequences for my actions as a kid. And I feared the wrath of my father. But I never once feared that he would disown me. Or that he would kick me out on the street. Now, to be fair, I didn't push the limits of that. But my place as his son was secure. I could be confident that I could call on him for help and that he wouldn't leave me to fend for myself. And the same goes for us as the children of God. Like a good father, he might have to go hard on his kids. He, might, he sets boundaries for us and he brings consequences when we act against him. God doesn't guarantee a trouble-free life, but we never have to worry that he will disown us, that he will kick us out on the street, that he will cast us off. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so in this third and last chunk, we see his power and we know his nature. We see his power and we know his nature. The third part of this psalm starts with the first command of the psalm. 
Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns chariots with fire. And it's not the thing that you would normally tell somebody to do. If you wanted to talk to them about God and about how he can be trusted, and do you, do you naturally go and say, look at all the destruction that God has brought? But the psalmist knows something here that we need to know. We find strength and security in God because we know how he has acted in the past. He's inviting people to look at what God has done. Look at God's track record. Look at the proof. Now, many of you may know that Laura and I are contemplating the prospect of uh, being called to sail in Victoria to work in a church there. And when I first got in contact with the church to start investigating, you know, is this something, are we going to be a good fit? Um, one of the first things that they asked for was referees, was for references. They immediately asked for a few for myself to check my track record, to find out, is this guy a Fruit Loop? Or is this guy maybe somebody who's worth investigating? And then they put me through a Geneva push assessment. And what's the first thing that they did? They asked for eight references for me and three for Laura. Because they wanted to know if this guy was who he said he was. Did the talk match reality? And this is what the psalmist is doing. He's showing how all his talk about God's power and security is backed up by God's track record. Just look. Look and see what God has done in the past. And he shows that he is good for it. He can meet the demand. He can deliver the goods. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God has delivered his people before. And the Bible is full of examples of it. But one of the, probably the, one of the most well-known ones is when the Israel was fleeing from Egypt. Pharaoh had finally let go and let them leave. But then Pharaoh changed his mind. And so he got together his army and started pursuing Israel. And Israel came up to the sea and they thought, how are we going to get through this? And God opened the sea for them and made a way through for them. And they traveled through on dry land. And then the army came, the army of Egypt pursued them. And when they came to the sea and they saw that Israel was making it through to the other side... They thought, well, that must be for us too. And they charged down into the sea on the dry land, but the dry land soon turned to mud and their chariots got caught. They were pursuing the people of God to destroy them or at the very least to take them back as captives. But then God brought the waters back in and destroyed them. He decimated them. God protected his people. God acted to save his people. He does so with power and might, and he has a track record of desolations to back up the claim that he is a refuge and a fortress for his people. And Peter does a similar thing when he writes to the church in the New Testament. He was responding to the people who were doubting that Jesus is going to come back. They thought that God was having them on. 
So Peter used the past record of God's power and judgment in the flood as an example, as a proof of what God will do. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see, God's judgments, God's desolations are worth remembering They're worth considering because they remind us of God's power and responsiveness. Even though it might feel like it's taking a long time, even though it's scary, God is a refuge to those who face the chaos and evil in the world because he has the ability to wipe away the enemies, to overcome every war. And so knowing this, knowing that God has the track record to back it up, the psalm continues with another command. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God says, stop. Let it go. Give up what you're doing and know that I am God. You often see this verse printed on coffee cups or, you know, descriptive writing on the wall and and there's nothing wrong with that I'm not trying to pick on that but kind of out of its context sometimes we don't see the fact that this is based on the fact that God brings destructions and desolations that God wipes out armies this brings us peace to know that God has it in hand we see in this context that it's speaking directly about God's protective fortress to his people The proof is in the pudding. He's done it before. Now stop. Stop worrying about how things will go. Stop trying to control the outcome of world events. Let go of the burden of trying to fix everything. Release the fears and anxieties that you've been holding on to. If you know who God is and what he has done, there's no need to hold on to these things. He's got it all in hand. He will be exalted. He will win. He will be sure that His glory is revealed to the world. Nothing that you or I can do can either thwart God's plan or bring it to fruition any faster. He's going to use His strength and His power to protect His people. He will sustain His people. You just be faithful in what God has called you to do. And as if to drive home the point, The psalm ends with a repeat of verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He sustains and protects us. He is strong. He's never leaving his people. So what now? What do we do with this next? Do you remember, kids? Do you remember what I said were the three things that we need in a fortress? I said it needs to be protective. It needs to be strong. 
it needs to sustain its people. And you see, God is doing all of those things for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way to God. He's the one through whom God saves the world. He is God and the one who joins us to God. Jesus redeemed us because once we were not the people of God, once we didn't have the option of taking refuge in Him because we were opposed to Him, because we were part of those people who were the swirling chaotic waters who were trying to attack Him and bring Him down. But Christ came to save us as sinners, as people who have rebelled against Him and transfer us into the kingdom of God because we needed to be saved. Because We have undermined him. We've spoke ill of him. We have failed to give him honor and glory and to serve him. But Jesus saves us by his atoning death. He dies in our place to bring us to God. He died to rescue us out of the chaos and out of this corrupt world to secure us against the coming wrath. And Stuart reminded us of this in that opening Bible passage that he read in Revelation. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. This is speaking of the Lamb of God, Jesus himself. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God's people are purchased. We are ransomed. God has protected us from the coming wrath. His power and might has overthrown death, and he sends his spirit to bring us life and to sustain us. He is our refuge, our help. So in Christ, we find him as our fortress. He is our protection. He is our strength. And he is the one who sustains us. So if you don't know Jesus, I would encourage you to come and to meet him today, to put your faith and your trust in him, to repent of all the evil that you have done, all your, all your wanderings, come to him and give your life to him. And I would love to help you in that. If you would like some help to know what it means to come to Jesus and to, and to repent and believe, and then be baptized, taking on that sign that you've had your sins washed away and you've, you have new life in Christ. But if you have already done these things, then you can rejoice. You can just join in with the sons of Korah singing praise and honour and worshipping our King. You can be still. It's time for you to give up what you're holding on to and rest and rely on God. Focus on what God has told you to do. And, as as we were commanded in the psalm, behold what God has done before. Because of what he's done before, because of the way he has acted, we can take refuge. We can rest in him. So get into the scriptures. See how God has acted and rest knowing that he has it all in hand. God is our refuge and our strength, a stronghold in times of trouble. Let's find that refuge and rest in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done, the way that you have acted to save your people through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are our refuge and our strength and our present help in time of trouble. We thank you, Lord, that you are a protection, that you are strong, 
And we thank you, Lord, that you sustain us. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way out of the chaos and the corruption of this dying world, a way to escape the coming wrath of God. Lord, we ask for, that you would help us to give up the things that we're holding on to, the things that we are idolizing, the things that we are anxious about. We ask, Lord, that you might help us to, to let go of trying to control everything and fix everything and to look to you as the one who will do it, as the one who promises to be our protection, to be our strength, to be the help in the morning. Lord, we give ourselves to you to rest in you, to rely on you. And we pray, Lord, for those who have not yet done that, that you would bring them to yourself this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.